0: For months, nothing, a little more nothing, some talk, more nothing, and then one House proposal, two, Senate bill. Yeah, I'm talking about taxes. A vote on the Senate tax plan is expected next week. It includes big breaks for oil, wind, and electric cars, but what could it all mean for you? I'm Lizzie O'Leary, and this is Marketplace Weekend, where the economy meets real life. Plus, politics doesn't hold a monopoly on disagreements. Ask anyone whose co-worker ever microwaved fish. We're talking food in the office and why it drives some people insane with Ask a Manager's Allison Green. But we're gonna start with more serious work matters. Harassment. More revelations have come to light in recent days around Alabama Senate candidate Roy Moore, comic Louis C.K., Kevin Spacey. The release of Louis C.K.'s new movie has been canceled, and Spacey has been removed from the film All the Money in the World, due out next month. Beyond the obvious personal pain of these men's targets, their actions have economic consequences for the companies involved. And that's why it appears that investors are now paying more attention to workplace culture. Barron's recently published an article on the topic, and the editor-in-chief, Catherine Bell, joins me in the studio. Welcome. Thank you. This has obviously been a year where we're talking a lot about harassment of all different kinds. And before we get into this piece, I'd like to get just a little historical perspective about how investors have viewed harassment in the past. Have they cared as an investment
1: risk? I don't think they've thought about it that much in the past. I mean, ESG investors – investors who think about environmental, social governance issues a lot obviously think about corporate culture, think about governance risks. But I don't think that investors have thought very specifically about harassment in the past so much. We actually looked at tens of thousands of annual reports and looked for how often the words gender, harassment, discrimination came up. And it's been pretty flat over time. Hmm. You were diving into company documents. Exactly. How
0: has this changed? Is it just these
1: high-profile cases, or is this something investors are becoming organically concerned about? I think it's both. I think the high-profile cases have meant that it's on a lot of people's minds, much more so than usual. Obviously, it's all over the media but i think i think investors really are starting to see it as part of a larger set of of corporate culture risks and the reality is that sexual harassment is expensive yeah and it's not just expensive when you're talking about really high profile you know legal situations and settlements it's really expensive when you think about it on an individual level at companies all over the place. So, some research showed that for every case of sexual harassment, it costs $22,500 in productivity alone. Wow. That's not even taking into account turnover, and lots of people. You know, lots of people leave after they've encountered a situation like this. So if you multiply that by, you know, the latest figures I've seen on the percentage of women who say they've been sexually harassed was the Wall Street Journal, NBC News poll really recently that was 48 percent. I've seen other research that goes a lot higher. And, you know, my own life, talking to my own friends, I think it's much higher higher. But, you know, if you average that out over that percentage of the workforce, that is a lot of money. Well, so how does this play out? What did you all
0: find when you looked at how investment advisors, pension funds, et cetera, you know, handle
1: this? What are they doing with their money? There are two things we saw when we talked to portfolio managers. The first one was that some of them told us that they were specifically – avoiding investing in companies that had any sort of controversy hmm. about this. So, you know, somebody from Morgan Stanley told us that she's not investing in companies that have, you know, outstanding litigation. That's a sort of obvious example, but other people told us as well, just sort of companies in general that are having problems with this, they're avoiding. Well, you mentioned the documents earlier and litigation makes sense. You can see mm-hmm. that, you can
0: quantify it. It's often public but this is also a difficult thing to measure if you are a socially conscious investor like how do you get the information anyway
1: it is really hard to measure and you know i think that's a problem with all of this but morgan stanley actually also did a really interesting study last year where they looked in general about how Cultures that support women were—and they looked at a bunch of different factors. They weren't looking at harassment specifically, but they were looking at pay equity and representation, you know, at the top, all the way through the company, especially at the top. They were looking at discrimination policies, that sort of thing. So they found a real impact on return on investment, on return on equity. They saw that companies that handled these things well and just generally had cultures that supported women and that had— more women in the company that they were actually doing better financially. Mm. And it's it's not just the returns, but they're also lower volatility, which is important. You know, they're less there's less probability that there's going to be a big drop in the stock. When we think about investors' priorities, mm-hmm. at the end of the day,
2: they
0: are there to make money, right. whether for themselves, for a you know Someone who's getting a pension, someone who's in a 401k, et cetera, whoever is doing that wants to make money. And so, where does this fall, do you think, in the way um, a money manager or portfolio manager assesses a company? You know, are they willing to say, Eh, yeah, maybe they're not so great for women, but
1: wow, their, you know, sales are way up this year. You know, I, how how do they puzzle through that equation? Well, I think what's interesting about this, I mean, you're right, of course, the money is the bottom line. But investors are starting to realize that there is the the possibility that something could come seemingly out of nowhere hmm. from the outside and and really Really affect the company's reputation, affect um, the the company's workforce, and you know they're really saying that alongside all the other risks, cybersecurity risk, all of these these sorts of risks, this is another one that could could have a huge effect, either slowly over time in ways that are hard to measure but measurable, or in in one fell swoop, which we've seen with Harvey Weinstein, we've seen a lot in the past year.
0: Are companies aware of all this? You know, are they responding? Do, do you think they connect? Oh, wait a minute. Someone might not buy my stock
1: because of the toxic culture here. Well, one of the problems up until this point, and the big question is, are we at a tipping point? Is yeah. this going to change? But corporate boards and both private and public companies have not seen the culture in the company as something that is their job to talk about. Mm. There's one survey said that 77 percent of boards hadn't talked about sexual harassment. Wow. So, you know, that's what I think could be changing right now is that I think it's, it's so much part of the conversation that boards are going to be starting to talk about it. That's what could really change things. Catherine Bell, editor-in-chief of Barrons. thank you so much. Thank you.
0: At the top of the show, I mentioned the Senate tax plan. The House released its plan just days earlier. A vote's expected in the Senate next week. But what do you need to know about what's in the Senate bill? Marketplace's Mariel Segura has
3: more. When you pay state and local taxes, you get to deduct them on your federal income tax returns. About 44 million people do that every year. The Senate tax bill gets rid of those deductions. Kenneth Rogoff, an economics professor at Harvard, says that hurts some states more than others.
4: The state and local tax deduction is a huge benefit for states like New York and California, which have very high tax rates compared to others.
3: Also, New Jersey, Texas, Illinois, and Pennsylvania. Scrapping the deductions would be a blow to residents and lawmakers from those states, and some of them are Republicans. A big part of the GOP push for a tax
0: overhaul is the promise that corporations will get a lower tax rate. The Senate bill delivers on that promise. It lowers the corporate rate from 35 to 20
3: percent. But there's a catch. That cut wouldn't go into effect until 2019. And that may not seem like a big deal, but it is for some. Kenneth Rogoff from Harvard again.
4: People might wonder, will it ever happen? When these things get postponed, they can always change. There's an election in 2018.
3: That means the balance of power in Congress could shift. And so the idea is that the GOP should lower the corporate tax rate now. That would be hard and costly to repeal.
0: And there are other ways the Senate proposal differs from the tax
3: bill put out by the House of Representatives. The House bill gets rid of a tax break that's popular among college grads, the deduction for student loan interest. The Senate bill keeps that deduction. And the House bill cuts the number of federal tax brackets. To pass a tax bill, the two chambers of Congress are going to have to come up with one version, which means they've got a lot to work out.
0: That's Marketplace's Marielle
3: Seguera. And if you still need to
0: make sense of what the House and Senate tax plans mean, credits, deductions, and more, just go to our website, marketplace.org. stories around you are more than just taxes, of course, which is why every week we bring you the news by the numbers with Marketplace's Tony Wagner and Sarah Menendez. Tony, it's
5: all yours. Thanks, Lizzie. Our first number is 525 million. That's how many dollars the government of Abu Dhabi paid to name a new museum Louvre after the original in Paris.
6: The Louvre Abu Dhabi can use the name for 30 years.
5: And for another three quarters of a billion, the Louvre Museum in Paris agreed to provide advice and artwork on loan.
6: The Abu Dhabi museum has been 10 years in the making and came in way over budget. 300.
5: That's many locations Boston-based bakery cafe Aubon Pen has.
6: Earlier this week, bread giant Panera announced it would acquire the smaller chain and develop it in new locations.
5: It's sort of a bread reunion for both chains. Aubon Pen bought the St. Louis Bread Company in 1991 and later renamed it Panera.
6: Panera grew then sold Aubon Pen in 1999. 18 years later, the bands back together. 80. That's how many dollars you'll pay for a ceramic smart mug sold now
5: at Starbucks. The coffee giant is selling mugs made by the LA company Ember.
6: The pricey cups are designed to keep your coffee or tea at the exact temperature you like once you sync it with Bluetooth and control it via app.
5: Ah, simple pleasure of a cup of coffee.
6: Yeah, for $80.
0: There is no getting around it. If you spend eight hours or more at work every day, at some point, you got to eat. Maybe get a sandwich or a salad, but there is always that person who microwaves something incredibly fragrant. Seriously, why? The do's and don'ts of food at work is this month's Ask a Manager topic, and Alison Green, food can seem like kind of a small thing, and yet it creates so much workplace drama. Why do you think that is?
7: It does. We tend to run into drama and angst at work when we run into each other's humanity. Um, So you see it come up with food. You see it come up with social issues. I think with food, there's so much weirdness around food in society in general. People who are judgy about what you're eating, people who push food on you that you don't want, um, people who want to comment on, on Everything you bring for lunch and everything you put in your mouth. And then, of course, there's the the physical ramifications of what people bring, too, the the smells and the sounds of crunching, which can drive people crazy.
0: Yeah. Actually, speaking of smells, we put this out on the Internet, and the two chief complaints about food that we got, there were a lot of offenders, but the big ones were microwaved fish and burnt popcorn. Um, Should there be a
7: hard and fast rule against these things? Those two, the fish and the popcorn and the microwave, are the ones that I hear people complain about the most, too. The third one that I hear a lot about is the smell of microwaved broccoli. Some offices do ban people from heating up fish or popcorn. I think if you're going to do a ban, you're better off keeping it short and sweet. You don't want to get into posting a long, detailed list of what people can and can't prepare, because the more complicated you make it, the more drama it's likely to cause, and the more you risk causing problems for people who maybe are on a restricted diet and and already choosing from a pretty small list of things they can bring for lunch. But most people, I think, can get on board with a ban on on microwaving one or two of the most notoriously smelly foods.
0: All right, then I'm going to flip this one around on you. Uh, this is a comment from our listener, David Egbert.
2: I try to eat healthy and I live paycheck to paycheck. So bringing lunch to my job at a chain drugstore is a necessity. Unlike everyone else that can go home for lunch, I have to use the break room. So why should I have to apologize for microwaving dishes with fish or broccoli when other co-workers just come in long enough to clock in or out? I can't afford to go to McDonald's every day, nor would I want to. What do you say to David,
7: if people genuinely aren't bothered by it, then David has nothing to worry about. If if no one else uses the break room and the smell doesn't carry, he should microwave to his heart's content. But if other people do go in there and the smell does linger, it's polite to be thoughtful about that. And there are a lot of healthy, affordable lunch options that don't involve heating up fish in particular.
0: You know, there are a lot of arguments about um, what qualifies as smelly food, but there, there is also a particularly cultural one that one of your readers raised saying that oftentimes people target food that's from other cultures they're not familiar with. How do you handle that, and is there a way to make everyone happy?
7: There is definitely a thing where people are more likely to complain about the smell of foods that are less familiar to them, which often does mean foods from other culture while they ignore equally pungent Western foods. You don't want to end up implying that American foods are fine while others aren't. I think you can agree on some ground rules, though, to navigate the biggest problems and ask people to be considerate of others. I mean, you've got to understand you're never going to have a perfectly odor-free office as long as you have humans working and and eating there. I I do think you can expect professional adults to be considerate of others once the issue is pointed out. Um, But yeah, you do want to keep an eye on it to make sure that you're not treating non-Western foods differently.
0: One listener wrote to us about a personal candy bowl that was co opted by her colleagues. I want to read you that one. This is Susan Austin, and she said, Are there any rules about a candy dish on a coworker's desk? At a former job, everyone seemed to think it was a communal dish, but it was on my desk, and I bought the candy with my own money. People would even make suggestions as to what kind of candy I should fill the dish with. Uh, how do you deal with this one?
7: I do think if you keep the candy dish on your desk, people are going to think it's there to share because that is often the case when a candy dish is sitting out. So. I think this person is inadvertently playing into to norms around candy dishes that she might not intend to to be activating. Um, so I'd say if you don't want people taking candy, store it somewhere else, like just in your desk drawer. Um but if you are okay with sharing as long as people don't abuse the privilege, um like by taking all of the candy and emptying it out within hours and making demands um if you're if you're okay with it as long as that stuff isn't happening, then I would say, you know if someone annoys you by trying to place an order for the kind of candy they want. Respond by asking them to pick up a bag of whatever it is they like the next time they're at the Hmm. store, and and hopefully they'll get the hint. So
0: shared food also brings up shared space, right? People label their lunches. We know not to take things from the office fridge that have labels on them, but – Who should police things when they go bad? We had kind of an amazing, I'm going to call out my colleagues here, passive aggressive milk labeling incident in the Marketplace New York Bureau. You know, this milk has gone bad. This milk was purchased on X date. Uh, Who deals with that stuff when it happens, when you're sharing a space?
7: Yeah. It's really the tragedy of the commons. Um, The only time I've seen offices successfully beat this one is when they make it officially part of someone's job. I think if you just rely on everyone to pitch in and take care of their stuff on their own, you end up with a fridge that looks like it's like full of science experiments. Um, so a lot of offices will assign, you know, often like a junior member of the admin staff, for instance, to clean the fridge once a week or once a month. A lot of places will say that they'll just toss everything that doesn't have a note on it, say every Friday afternoon, you, Tupperware containers and all. If you don't implement some kind of system like that, you do get pretty disgusting situations in there.
0: A couple of listeners wrote to us about potluck moochers, um, and there, there was this photo, I don't know if you remember, that made the rounds on social media of potluck macaroni and cheese that was literally just pasta with a grated cheese on the top. <laughs> um, and our listener, Gary Montgomery, wrote to us about bad cooks bringing in unhealthy recipes at his workplace for potlucks, miracle whip pasta, for example. Um, are there tips for potlucks and
7: communal meals that don't you know, create a war. Office potlucks are so interesting because there's such a wide range of how they play out. Some offices are full of really great cooks who bring in gourmet dishes and who compete to outdo each other. And then in other offices, you get a dozen people who all just bring in a bag of tortilla chips. So, and also, I think sometimes people get resentful that they've put real time and effort into preparing something, and then a colleague strolls in, plops down a liter of soda on the table, and walks out with a plate full of food that represents hours of, of their coworkers' <laughs> cooking labor. Yeah. I think, though, you know, not everyone cooks, and people have different ideas of what good food is. And that's just the nature of office potlucks. Your best bet is probably to embrace the weirdness if you can and to enjoy this glimpse into your coworkers' culinary leanings. And if you're going to be bothered, if, if you don't find something that you're excited to eat there, bring in some backup food for yourself in case you end up needing it. One tip for managers, though, if you can, it can help for the office itself to provide a catered main course or two while everyone else provides the desserts and the appetizers so that if you do get a lot of those macaroni and cheese disasters that you mentioned, there's still enough for people to feed themselves with.
0: Allison Green, who runs Ask a Manager, uh, joins us every so often to talk about work, life at work, and the do's and don'ts of the place where we all spend a lot of time. Thank you, Allison. Thank you. Now, a week is a long time in politics, certainly in this environment. But remember when Paul Manafort, President Trump's former campaign manager, was indicted? Well, one of the things special counsel Robert Mueller's investigation found was that Manafort was in debt to Russian interests to the tune of about $17 million. And that got us thinking about debt more generally, how it makes people feel, whether it changes their behavior – Dr. Thomas Richardson is a clinical psychologist with the UK's National Health Service. He studies mental health and debt, and he found a connection between debt and mental health while doing a study about tuition increases in the UK.
8: I found that what was interesting is that actually that increase in tuition fees didn't have much of an impact on mental health. But how much he was struggling financially, so not being able to pay the bills, really did.
0: Richardson found that stress from debt could increase the risk of eating disorders, alcoholism, and anxiety.
8: So basically, you're anxious about your finances, and then you probably tend to avoid your finances, um, and that just fuels the financial difficulties. And same with drinking you know, you're, you're worried about your finances, so you drink, and that's not going to be particularly healthy for your bank balance. Broadly speaking, about financial difficulties, about debt specifically we found, I I did a meta-analysis where you pull together all of the research that's been published and we found that people with mental health problems are three times more likely to be in kind of problem debt.
0: And the amount doesn't really seem to matter. What does matter is how stressed someone feels about their ability to get out of debt and whether the expense was worth it.
8: Some people will have a lot of debt and they'll be all right with it. Some people will have a small amount of debt and they'll be really stressed out about it. So I think it's about The sense you make of it, do you feel like it's debt for a purpose, like a mortgage? Do you feel like it's debt you're never going to be paid off? And there's lots of psychological factors like how hopeless you feel about it and the future that kind of can impact it.
0: Stress can cause people to act irrationally, Richardson says. And that might mean trying to forget about the problem or even spending in risky or irresponsible ways to try to make money more quickly.
8: You know, some people saying stuff like, I just ignore... Those letters, I, I put them straight in the bin. I, don't even, I can't even bear to look at my bank balance. So it's kind of a, a way to cope, which is self-destructive in the long run, yes, but it's not intentionally self-destructive. I think sometimes people use this term of financial self-harm. I'd kind of use this idea of accidental financial self-harm because often you're trying to cope and you're trying to make things better, but it might just backfire.
0: If you are in debt, Richardson says there are ways to deal with the stress that are free and healthy.
8: I think you really need to just focus on what is important to you and what gives you a sense of achievement and satisfaction that doesn't involve money. And it can be really simple things, you know, like going for a walk in the park, stuff that's free. You know, make sure you do that and get out. Being aware of those when your mind, you know, races to the worst-case scenario. It's not always going to be what happens, but that's what happens when we're anxious. I use a lot of mindfulness... With my clients, we actually have, if you search for Solent Mindfulness Exercises on YouTube, we've got a whole load of mindfulness exercises. And they can be really helpful because they can help you step back from those kind of catastrophic thoughts about your finances. And I think the last thing is just, it's very easy to try and avoid it all if you're very anxious, I get that. Um, It's just about one step at a time, you know. Don't expect yourself to be able to go in streets speak straight to the bank manager but if you've been avoiding it off start small open one bill try and sort that out then work on to the next one you know so just one step at a time it's not going to solve everything but just getting back a little bit of a sense of control
0: dr thomas richardson is a clinical psychologist in the national health service in the uk he studies mental health and finance and if you want to share your experience with debt and stress you can write to us at weekend at marketplace.org One way to deal with debt? Talk to a financial planner. But before you sit down to get your money in order, what are the five questions you should ask? That's what Dan Nimlos wants to know. He reached out on Twitter. We're at Marketplace WKND, by the way. And so for you, Dan, and anybody else who wondered, here are the first things you should ask when meeting with a financial planner. Laura Adams from the Money Girl podcast.
9: What is point number one? When you're starting this process and you're talking to advisors, you want to ask them about their industry credentials. This is so important because looks can really be deceiving. Just because someone looks older or experienced doesn't mean that they're competent or trustworthy. So unlike other professions that require a degree, financial advisors don't have to earn one. So you want to look for certifications like Certified Financial Planner or CFP. Chartered Financial Analyst, or CFA, and Chartered Financial Consultant, or CHFC. These are common credentials that you'll see in the field. And if you're looking for just investments, let's say you just want somebody to help you buy and sell investments, you can use a Registered Investment Advisor, or RIA. That's a special type of broker who's held to a higher standard because they must act as your fiduciary. So these are all different types of certifications that you want to ask about. And if you're looking for tax or estate advice, maybe you just need a certified public accountant or an estate attorney.
0: Okay, so check out your planner's credentials. Point two, ask about expertise.
9: There are lots of different types of financial professionals out there. So you've got to be sure that you're working with someone who specializes in the type of advice that you need. So maybe it's planning for retirement, investing, taxes, insurance, estate planning, or even business strategy. Make sure that you're dealing with someone who is an expert in the types of services that you really need help with. All right, sounds good. but everybody's different. So is the planner the right fit for you? Definitely ask who their typical client is and what types of problems that professional solves for him or her. This is because you want to be similar to their portfolio of clients. You want to find out how similar you are to who who they work with. you know are they people with higher income or lower income? Are they high net worth individuals? Or not, if you are not similar to that advisor's typical client base, you may not get their best advice or even the best service possible. Let's move on to point four. Look out for red flags. Also ask about a financial advisor's philosophy or their investing style. Always discuss how a financial professional views his or her role and how they measure success when working with you. Definitely watch out for red flags like promises to make you a lot of money in a short period of time. That could definitely be a sign that you may be dealing with someone who is not ethical or somebody who could be trying to scam you. So no matter what kind of professional you need, be sure to interview at least three of them before settling on the one you want to hire. And you might meet them in person. You could talk on the phone, have a Skype call, or even do a Google Hangout. Just be sure to have some questions prepared. You want to be ready to lead the conversation with some questions to get that person talking openly about themselves, their current clients, and how they prefer to work. And last but not least, point five, do not be afraid to talk money. No, seriously. Don't be hesitant to ask exactly how any financial professional is paid. Some may earn commissions based on products that you buy, like an investment fund or life insurance. Others may bill you an hourly rate. Some may charge a flat fee. And some people are gonna receive a combination of these types of income. There are a growing number of planners who are fee-only, and that means they don't earn commissions, but instead they charge a flat rate to analyze your situation and create a customized financial plan. So if you're interested in working with a fee-only advisor, that may be a good way to get started, and you can learn a lot more about them at some of the industry sites like the National Association of Personal Financial Advisors at napfa.org, or the Certified Financial Planner Board at cfp.net. That's it, the five things you need to
0: ask when meeting a financial planner. Thanks to Dan Nimlos for the question, and thanks to Laura Adams from the Money Girl podcast for the advice. You can read more about this on our website, marketplace.org. And if you have suggestions on five things you want to know about economics or finance, just email us. We're weekend at marketplace.org or reach out on Twitter like Dan did. We're at Marketplace WKND. There are a couple weeks left in this year's Atlantic hurricane season, but for those people hit by Harvey, Irma, and Maria back in August and September, the cleanup and recovery is going to go on for months, and in some cases, years. I'm going to Puerto Rico next week to speak with people there about their new normal. But in the meantime, we're going to check in on what's happening in Florida with Marketplace's senior reporter, Mitchell Hartman. He has been traveling through the southwest of the state, and he joins me now. Hi, Mitchell.
4: Hi, Lizzie. Good to be here.
0: What's it like on the ground? What do you see?
4: You know, there is still a lot of evidence of Hurricane Irma. You know, throughout the southwest part of the state, you still see big piles of debris. In the fanciest parts of the state, You don't see it so much. It's been cleaned up, but you just go into these little neighborhoods of, you know, middle class homes and mobile homes, and there is still a huge amount of damage.
0: Well, run the numbers on Florida for me so far, including FEMA. What what do they look like?
4: Two and a half million, actually 2.6 million Applications for FEMA disaster relief, that's from households. They can get up to like $33,000 for temporary shelter, uh, basic repairs, uh, food, clothing, etc. That is about four in 10 Florida households, which is really a pretty stunning number. Nearly $900 million has already been paid out. Uh, A lot of those applications, I will say, of those 2.6 million are still pending. There's still 6,000 or more people in temporary shelters and uh, about 389,000 people have gotten rental assistance. So, you know, there's still really a lot of need out there. So I went to a FEMA disaster relief center. It was in an office park in Naples, Florida. And these people are coming in with pretty specific problems. Majority is the mold and the mildew. They had a lot of sliding doors that failed, major roof problems. And they're having problems getting estimates as to how much they need as homeowners to get their houses repaired. And that's Elaine McNeil. She's a mitigation specialist for FEMA. The other thing she told me is that there are a lot of out of state, shady contractors. I was surprised.
0: So that was homeowners. What about businesses?
4: I went to Goodland, Florida. It is right where the hurricane first made landfall. I talked to Steve Gober. He owns a seafood restaurant. He said he closed for eight weeks. He's just now started to reopen on weekends. He says he's plowed about $100,000 of his own money into repairs. Uh, He's gotten a lot of sweat equity from friends and his workers. And here's what he said about trying to get help from the government. With FEMA, I'm sure they help a lot of people. I'm sure they do a lot of good, but I found it just be too much bureaucracy involved. And you basically need a lawyer to help you figure it out.
0: Well, so is FEMA reaching and helping everybody who wants it? Do you have a sense of that?
4: You know, when you go to the poorest neighborhoods, this is mobile homes uh, for, you know, Uh, Low income retirees, these little courts, uh, there are a lot of them for migrant workers, especially in the center of the state in the agricultural region, Uh, you see a lot less help seems to have been delivered. You know, FEMA is reaching out. They do help families, even undocumented families, if the children of those people are uh, U.S. citizens or permanent residents. But, you know, a lot of people don't speak English. A lot of people are just afraid to apply for help or don't know about it. I visited Immokalee. Uh, That is a small town that is mostly mobile homes uh, in pretty bad shape to begin with a lot of workers in the tomato fields and the citrus groves i met gerardo reyes chavez there he's a farm worker advocate at a group called the coalition for immokalee workers he actually grew up in the fields himself and he explained the situation for a lot of people there
2: we're not strangers to this to to being in a vulnerable place as a community so whenever there is a storm place people in danger because of the mobile homes, because of the living conditions that we have as a community.
4: You know, there's not a ton that FEMA or the state uh, really can do aside from improving those underlying conditions.
0: That was Marketplace's senior reporter Mitchell Hartman. Mitchell, thank you. You're welcome. We are quickly approaching the end of the year, and with that, holiday season. And for some people, that means getting rid of old stuff, preparing for new, or for having a ton of relatives in your house, which can mean staying organized and attacking clutter, my mortal enemy. So we're bringing in an expert to help us plan, and also talk about why trendy minimalism doesn't have to cost a fortune. Julie Carlson is the author of the new book, Remodelista, The Organized Home, and the co-founder of Remodelista.com. Welcome. Welcome. Thank you. You know, when I think about the sort of culture right now and the ferocious success of something like Marie Kondo's book um, or all of these exhortations to be a minimalist, there there seems to be a movement in America to get rid of stuff
10: and pare down to what you need. What do you think is behind that? We've evolved into a place where there's so much – fast fashion. There's so much there's so much to buy now. Um, And it's I think it's human nature to want to accumulate. And now I think we're just being encouraged um, to buy too much. So I think I think that's where it's coming from is I think we all have too much stuff. Does this end up being a
0: champagne problem? You know, I mean, is it is it a problem only at the high end? Or do you see this kind of across income levels when you think about kind of just how people interact with stuff?
10: I think it's across – I think it's everyone. I think we're all very tempted to
0: accumulate. Remodelista really thinks about and looks at design and you're you're talking about sort of remodels and principles. This is really about – in some ways it feels like working with stuff you already have, not starting from scratch. I mean, is it the
10: inverse of of the site? I suppose you could say that. We also wanted to approach organization from a different lens. We didn't want it to be all about – ridding your ridding your house of all everything you everything but the essentials we wanted it to it to be more about how to live with what you love and how to organize out in the open what you love so for instance i'm a huge believer in creating beauty around your kitchen sink hmm. um not a particularly <laughs> traditionally beautiful spot exactly but it can be a beautiful spot if you if you just take a little time to decant your soap dish into a glass pump dispenser which is what I do so you don't have to look at the sort of the you know the bottle of the plastic bottle of dish soap or whatever you're using I'm kind of like weirdly obsessed with sponges like I can't stand purple sponges or blue sponges so I I get these sort of natural sponges and I keep them sort of arrayed in these lovely little ceramic dishes and it makes doing the dishes for me quite pleasurable
0: well, a lot of the things you are talking about, decanting or making things look pretty, um, they sound expensive. Do, do they have to be expensive?
10: No, not at all. I buy glass jars from IKEA and keep my flour and my um, rice and grains and so on in, in, in these jars, neatly lined up in my kitchen cabinet. And I think they're—I don't—I think they're about two dollars each. I mean, it's not nothing, but it's not—but um, it's—it's not crazy expensive. It's, it's within reach, yeah. One of your sort of early commandments in this book is to buy fewer, better things. Meaning what? Can you share with me a few examples? Yes. Well, strangely enough, I have a fixation on garbage cans. And um, I can't stand a kind of an ugly plastic garbage can sitting in the middle of my kitchen. So one of the first things I did when we moved to New York into a smaller apartment and with a smaller kitchen was invest in this obscenely expensive white enameled French garbage can. Whoa! And it costs the same as a pair of you know high heels. But how many times a day do you use a garbage can? Dozens. And I get more use out of that, more pleasure out of that garbage can than I do out of a pair of shoes that's in the back of a closet that maybe I wear twice a year.
0: Well, to, to push back on that a little bit, people
10: are going to listen to this and say, well, I can't afford
0: to spend a lot of money on a garbage can. So what are the strategies then for buying fewer, better things that are not going to break the
10: bank? Right. One of the things we do on Remodelista that's um, popular with our readers is high-low. So on that for that very same garbage can, I have that that can, and then I have one that's about an eighth of the price. Um, you'd have to go to the site to find it because I can't remember what the – Yeah, yeah. But they are – you know, there's – Ikea makes very nice garbage cans. I think it just – I think it depends on what you want to splurge on. I am also curious about
0: what is the bane of my organizational, you know, attempts. I will get really fired up about something. I will tackle the closet, the cabinet, whatever. And then two months later, I just totally
10: backslide. How do you not do that? That's a really good question. Um, I'm guilty of the same thing. I try to do little check-ins once every couple of weeks in my own closet, for instance, and Pick up stuff that's fallen on the floor, reorganize my hanger, you know, reorganize according to color or whatever, you know, system I'm using at the time. So I think you just have to do these little check-ins, these, you know, every couple of weeks. And we're not maniacal about it. None of us are like organization freaks. Like we all have our little – on remodelies to each one of us has our little circle of hell. But it's maintenance. Julie Carlson uh, from Remodelista
0: and one of the authors of Remodelista the Organized Home. Thank you. Thank you. And you can find advice from Julie Carlson on how to organize your home on our website, marketplace.org. A financial life, but what does that look like when you're in the public eye? That's where the marketplace quiz comes in, when authors, musicians, and other creative people share their thoughts on money and work.
2: How do you do? This is the smooth dude with the gangster groove, Mayor Hawthorne, in the place to be.
4: What is the hardest part about your job that no one knows?
2: Ooh, man, that's tough. Touring is really, really tough on your body, and and a lot of my friends, like when I come to town, you know, my friends in other cities, other parts of the world, and they'll say, "Hey, man, I heard you coming to town. You know, when? (laughs) How long are you gonna be here? And you know, can we get up next Friday?" And I'll be like, "Yo, you don't get it, man. We're gonna. I'm coming in." Today, we're doing the show today, and we're in another city tomorrow. We're gone. So we don't, you know, you don't make any money on a day off hanging out.
4: What is something you bought that you now completely regret buying?
2: (laughs) This is a great question. Like, I have a rule with clothes. If I if I have not worn it in a year, then I get rid of it. But it was probably some article of clothing, like a, a pair of jorts or something that I was just like, man, what was I thinking here?
4: When did you realize you can make an actual living off of music?
2: It wasn't for a while. I, when I first moved to L.A., I was DJing, you know, just taking whatever kind of DJ gigs I could just to keep myself afloat. And then even when I signed my, my first record deal with Stone's Throw here and I put my first single out, and it, it did pretty well. And it was still a while after that before I could actually like quit my regular job. And I was doing graphic design and stuff. And, you know, really just Detroit hustler mentality, you know, anything I could get to make a couple bucks to buy a burrito. Do you remember your first DJ gig? How it went? And my first DJ gig was definitely some kind of like house party at the University of Michigan on campus and it, I was probably terrible. I'm sure I was awful. <laughs> when I got my first pair of turntables like in high school, I I locked myself in my room for like a summer and and I really just like worked at it all summer long because I didn't want to suck. <laughs> I was I I was, you know, really inspired by guys like Disco D, amazingly skillful with it, and I I didn't want to suck, man. I was like, I need to be that good. How'd your parents react when you told them, this is what I was going to do now? Well, my dad still plays bass guitar and sings in a band in Michigan to this day, so he did it back then, and he knew how incredibly difficult it was to make a living at it, so... He always told me, you know, make sure you got, you know, you're going to go to college and you're going to get a degree and you're going to have something to fall back on. And, But he was always encouraging of me, you know, when I when I wanted to do it. They're, my parents are my biggest fans for sure. What was your first job? One of the first jobs that I can really remember that I had when I was a, a teen was um, I drove the little tractor at the golf driving range that picked up the golf balls, and everybody would try to tag me. and I drove that thing around, and, and I picked up the golf balls. That was one of my first jobs. In the next life, what would your career be? Uh, I would probably be some kind of handyman Like I'd probably be the dude that comes to your house to fix your washer and dryer or something My dad owned a, a hardware store growing up Great Lakes Hardware and Auto He's Mr. Handyman, so he kind of passed a lot of it down to me And I like working with my hands and stuff and You know, getting in there and twisting a wrench here and there
4: Last question: What is something everyone should own, no matter the
2: cost? Everybody should own a good pair of dress shoes. I <laughs> know, and, and a good suit. Everybody should own a good black suit. Like a good sharp outfit. A good sharp outfit. Impressions are everything, man. You got to feel good about yourself, and you're, if you got a good outfit, you're gonna feel good about yourself. That's so important, man. Confidence. Confidence is key.
0: Thanks to Mayor Hawthorne for taking the Marketplace quiz. That was produced by Raghu Manavalan. You can check out some of our other quizzes on our website. Just go to marketplace.org. Next week on the show, we're talking turkey, literally, with cookbook author Mark Bittman. He's bringing us the veggie Thanksgiving dishes that will stand up to, or in some cases, replace
4: the bird. So one is stuffed squash, which, you know, butternut squash or delicata squash, even better. Acorn squash, of course, is traditional, but, you know, any winter squash will do. So you open the squash, you scoop out the seeds, and you put in there whatever you want to put in there. So it usually is, makes sense to... Cook the squash halfway or so first so the stuffing doesn't overcook and then you can stuff it with, uh, you know, a tomato sauce or you can stuff it with uh, any grain mixture, quinoa mixed with dried cherries and pecans and – or, you know, fresh tomatoes mixed with corn and parsley. I mean – Chopped squash, of course, can stuff squash. So you can you can do – and you can do meat stuffings if you want. It's not vegetarian any longer. But, you know, stuffed squash is really a beautiful thing.
0: More on Thanksgiving food on the next show. And in the meantime, you can get in touch with us. Email your comments to weekend at marketplace.org. And I always include a recipe in the newsletter. Just go to marketplace.org to subscribe. And that is it for this Marketplace Weekend. The show is produced by Peter Balanon-Rosen and Eliza Mills. Joanne Griffith is our senior producer. Drew Jostad is our engineer. Our theme music is composed by Narin Rao. And we welcome Evelyn LaRubia as Marketplace's new executive editor. Deborah Clark is our senior vice president and general manager. I'm Lizzie O'Leary. Thanks for listening. this is apm